let me get the actual picture. Hey, guys. this is Ross Payton with Roll Playing Club Radio. We're at Gen Con 2016 <laughs> Game Designers Workshop Live. Uh, this is our first panel. Hi. Uh, I see a lot of really happy and a lot of tired faces. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping everyone's having a good time so far. We've had a couple bumps along the way so far, but. <laughs> Literally? Yeah. As in car wrecks. Yeah. We're fine. Uh, fender okay. benders, don't worry. Yeah, yeah we're, we're good. good. Um, so, yeah, we're here to talk about game design uh, workshop. Uh, we, of course, have a lot to talk about. Uh, Caleb, uh, Finnish Red Markets, uh, hopefully some backers in here. Yay. It's not finished. Yeah. It's not finished. <laughs> and, yeah, and I uh, <laughs> uh, have a card game that I wanna, uh, I'm working on, and I'll talk a little bit about that, called Steal Dracula's Gold, uh, where your villagers trying to steal Dracula's gold. And then, of course, Jeff is uh, working on Upwind, which is a role playing, high fantasy role playing game with a playing card mechanic, and it's really cool. So, uh, I guess we could start with just a little status update of how things are going. So, uh, Caleb, do you want to start off? How how is Red Markets right now? Uh, good. It's in process. So um, we talked about this a little bit before, uh, but in terms of project management, you want as many people working simultaneously as possible. So the first third of the book has gone through uh, an editing pass. Thank you, Laura. Raise your hand. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful job. Yeah. Uh, the unenviable task of reading my uh, unedited prose. Uh, but it's gone through that, so that's moved on to uh, layout now. Uh, and then I've just sent the GM chapter to her. That's beginning that process. And then I'm finishing up writing the setting chapters. Uh, and then uh, I've also art directed those sections. So all of those contracts have gone out and all the artists should be working. Uh, Michael, uh, one of our artists. Yay! Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're, uh, we're just... Uh, I have everybody working as uh, simultaneously as possible. So at this point, we have art pouring in, and I'm doing a lot of art direction, and I'm writing whenever I can get a spare moment. Uh, but that's that's Red Markets currently. Uh, I'm doing absolutely nothing with stretch goals because our priority is to work on the book first, get the book done, then stretch goals. So uh, yeah, so every spare moment I have is finish the core book, and then we can work on. You know, special podcasts and supplements and websites and all that fun stuff. Uh, so that's that's where Red Markets is at. We're just in the we're in the grind now. Just get as much done as quickly as possible. So, um, so Jeff, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Upwind. Uh, we had a playtest, and I interviewed you for Roleplaying Bubble Radio. Uh, so where is? Uh, for those who didn't listen to it, maybe give them a little introduction to Upwind and then like where the project is right now. Okay. Uh, well, I've been trying to create an elevator pitch for it because it's kind of a hard game to, to pitch. Uh, so if you've seen the right movie reference, so here's here's the one I've been sharing at the con. So if you've ever seen Ralph Bakshi's Wizards? Yes. Yeah? Uh, well, imagine that has a head-on collision with Disney's Treasure Planet, and then someone puts out the resulting fire with uh, a hose full of Studio Ghibli. Um, and that's kind of what I've been pitching. If people kind of glaze over, I move on. Yeah. If, if people glaze over, I move on. If they get interested, then I tell them a little more. But you got floating islands, an endless sky, uh, explorer knights flying, sailing skyships. Uh, there's the kingdoms in the light and the children from the dark. And it's uh, really about um, lost science and elemental magic and this sort of technology that's driving the recovery from a long-ago apocalypse. 
Um, and it's uh, it's different, certainly different than Blue Planet. Okay. And very very narrativist, um, run on a card mechanic that that instead of using incremental um, actions like in most traditional role-playing games, uses sort of a, well, we call it Q for quantum because it jumps ahead every time you have an encounter, you uh, negotiate stakes, and uh, then you play your, your bid from these hands of playing cards, and depending upon whether the moderator or the players win the bid, then the narrative immediately follows in that direction. Yeah, so instead of like... Normally, when you fight bandits, you know, on your skyship, you would, like, roll for initiative, then I attack, I hit or miss, then the bandits attack, they hit or miss, and you go back and forth. In this one, it's like, well, I want to defeat the bandits and become, and they become so impressed with my strength that I become, they choose me as their new leader. Versus, all right, they, they not only beat you up, they kick you off and strand you on a sky island and steal your ship. Perfect example. Uh, and so that would be resolved in one play of the cards. So in like instead of that taking an hour to resolve, it takes a few minutes, and then the story moves on from there. So you get through a lot more story in. Uh, yeah, what might typically game. be a, you know a ten session campaign, you can play in three or four sessions. Yeah, uh, so that's a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, so I'm working on a card game right now. Uh, like I said, it's called Steel Dracula's Gold. Uh, this actually came from a one shot I posted on Roleplay Global Radio called Steel Dracula's Gold. Which was about people trying to steal Dracula's gold. Uh, yeah, you know, What's it about? Yeah. Uh, 19th century Prussian agriculture. Uh, so, and it's not just about stealing his gold, it's also killing Dracula too, because you're the mob of villagers in this card game uh, with pitchforks and torches, and you're heading to his castle, and you're trying to find Dracula to kill him, and you're trying to get as much money, you know, much of his treasure as possible, because you're dirt poor peasants. And so every round, every player has to resolve one card from a castle deck uh, that has a monster or a trap or something like that. And they can fight monsters to gain more treasure, or they can, you know, suffer through traps, losing villagers along the way. And then uh, once you draw a certain number of Dracula cards, then you have to fight Dracula. But it's not just one Dracula. There's, he has different forms, so, you know, based on his body parts. Like, there's, you know, blood form and, you know, spirit form. And, you know, and so... Uh, and then you, so everyone has a boss fight, or maybe uh, there's some, you know, it's a competitive game because at the end it's whoever has the most gold at the end wins the game. So you're trying to f- work together to kill Dracula, but you're also trying to get more gold than the other villagers. So um, it is in playtesting. I mean, like, I've, I read the role, uh, it's actually very interesting designing a card game because. Uh, it takes a doesn't take nearly as long to write rules. Like it's a few pages of rules. It's not like writing a book. It's weird. Uh, I'm not spending months and months on it. But then you have to write all these cards. Do you have fall damage? Uh, <laughs> uh, what happens if someone gets there are, poisoned? There are pit traps. Yeah. 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 Can you default in the card game? Uh, <laughs> I don't have cards. Can yeah. I play? Yeah. Why zombie? Uh, yeah. Why why Dracula? The uh, Dracula's land. Um, and but. Then you like you actually have to physically make the cards in order to play the game. So like I had to print cards out, cut them out, put them in card sleeves, and that's kind of it's weird. So from my perspective, because I'm used to writing books, so uh, that's where I'm right now. I'm going to be playtesting a lot of Gen Con. Uh, I don't know when I'd be ready to do a Kickstarter because I haven't figured out like the art direction for it, the art style for it. I know I don't want to do a, a retro. It is obviously inspired by Castlevania as well as horror movies, but I'm not going to do an 8-bit video game graphic because <laughs> Boss Monster would probably sue me. Uh, and 
I did, it's just been done. So uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll see where it goes. Uh, I also have ruin that's in the 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 background of my head. I'm still I have an idea of where to go with it, but uh, I wanted to try something different first. So uh, that's where we all are right now in terms of our games. I think we could open this panel up. I mean, do you guys have questions about like game you design? Have questions? It's yeah. gonna be really awkward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do know that. Um, there was something I wanted to say. We we were just Caleb and I were just at a panel about game design and publishing your own games uh, with the IGD and the Indie Game Developers Network, and they sort of press ganged you into being on the panel. <laughs> um, and they're talking about POD versus offset print run. And there was one point I wanted to make. Um, print on demand is obviously you know you one book at a time versus offset, where you get like a thousand books at a time or two thousand or three thousand. Um, and Caleb, Red Markets went from POD to Offset. And the main reason was actually because the uh, cost, it's not just the, the, the economy of scale, it's also like what the book is going to be. Like POD makes more sense almost always if you're doing a black and white soft cover book because it's very cheap. But if you try and do anything other than black and white and soft cover book, it's Offset because print-on-demand does not scale with hardcover or with color or with glossy pages or anything that's re, you know really nice high-quality book. So if you're even if you're doing like 10,000 copies, if it's just a black and white soft-cover book, they should probably stick with POD. Uh, the cost just you know doesn't really change. But if you're doing color, you know POD is bad. <laughs> if you're doing yeah, if you if you're getting soft-cover red markets, it'll be printed. It'll go through DTRPG, like I said in the Kickstarter. Yeah, but um. I might not keep it up after that. Yeah. Because, I mean, hardcover is going to let it hold together better. It's a four-hour Dear God, I'm not brief. Uh, <laughs> Kyle can tell you, oh, yeah, it's a 4,000-word sidebar. That's how sidebars work, right? <laughs> uh, I'll like, lay that out. Um, uh, it's a novella sidebar. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, there's some role-playing games that are shorter than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quite a few. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, and then I'm just like, and I would like to eventually make money on the book uh, one day. Uh, and yeah, the margins are much better for the offset runs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you guys, um, I, I assume you listen to the podcast because you want to design games at some point. You're interested in the process. Uh, so where are you guys at? What kind of challenges are you having? Like, how can we help you make game? Uh, yes. Well, it's playtesting for me right now because the way oh. I feel about it. I've been working on it for a mind for years. And what kind of game is it? It's a science fiction uh, conspiracy kind of game. It's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi. Well, is it a role-playing game? It's or? a tabletop role-playing game. Okay, yeah. It's a full-on tabletop role-playing game. Um, maybe this is me rationalizing it, or maybe um, to me, story comes before the mechanics, but it's sort of you need to have the mechanics to make the story as good as it possibly can be from Graham's mm-hmm. standpoint. And the way I feel about it, when I played it, and I didn't do white room scenarios, where you just go straight for the testing the mechanics of it, it doesn't really inform on how am I going to design the storytelling elements at the same time with the mechanics of the game. Okay. So the point that I'm at right now is that I want to go these deep, well, I don't want to use the other part of the body, but um, um, to keep storytelling a campaign, as I would, you know, storytelling campaign rather than just stopping and play testing and all that stuff, and then uh, master every aspect of the game, and then turn around and make the adjustments. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. With play testing, one thing 
you have to consider is there's a point at which you need to send it out to other people to run, yeah. and then there's a large section before that in which that will be useless because you don't have everything written and stuff. So I was very lucky in RPPR with playtest groups because I would run red markets and then be like, how do I do this? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, and so if I sent that out for beta, when we hit that same thing, I don't know how you do that, they stop playing. And now you've tested everything up into that point. Whereas if I'm running it, I'll just make crap up. And we will go on and test something else. And then I have a note not only that I need to figure out what to do when someone asks that question, I have a note on like all the other stuff we managed to test because we forged through by making stuff up. Um, at a point when everything's written down, then you need to play test it with other people. And I think that there were definitely some mechanical changes based off the beta, and thank you to all of you who participated, but the main thing I learned from the beta is where I wasn't communicating the mechanics well, and I think that should be the difference between, am I playtesting with my home group, or have I found random people to run it? Uh, I think it should be like, alright, I know I can run it, but I can't pack myself in the box. Now it's time to make sure I've actually told people how to write. And that's more of a writing workshop thing than a mechanics thing. If you're sending it out for everybody's like, what do you think the dice mechanic should be? It's too soon. Like, you don't want them deciding large swaths uh, and, like, designing by committee like that. Yeah. Um, so I would say that's the main concern for me when I did the playtesting for the latest game was, like, when is it ready to give to people versus when do I just need to be running it for the home group. So uh, You also learned that skill defaults are really important and useful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, um, yeah, for Blue Planet, uh, what was your sort of guideline for playtesting it? Like, how did that work? Um, I'm going to admit something. Uh, <laughs> there was very little outside playtesting. Uh, we uh, did the a lot of in-house playtesting, but it was the first edition was a simple um, percentage mechanic. There wasn't really much to it. Second edition, we were up against the deadline. Um, my partner wrote the second edition rules, um, and they went right into production pretty much um, with almost no playtesting um, outside of, of our own group, and we just kind of crossed our fingers. <laughs> well, it worked out pretty well. I yeah, think. But, but again, it's still a fairly simple. Yeah. I did want to speak to something that you said, and I'm not sure if that was all of your question, but it sounded like you're concerned about linking your mechanics to your setting yeah. in a way that's substantive. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say that I think that's where um, new ground can be made in, in role-playing games. I think there's a lot of sort of indie-style games that take one particular mm -hmm. aspect of, of whatever the designer is aiming at and does a really good job with creating sort of an immersive moment. But role-playing games to which you can play campaigns, and I'm going to pick on you for a minute, I think Red Marcus does a fantastic job of marrying the mechanics to the, to the setting in a way that each informs the other and makes the other better. Uh, and so if, if that's the goal you're aiming at, I, I think you've you got to do exactly what they said. You've got to get those two working together before it goes out to, to anybody else. Uh, well, you don't need a setting so much as you need a tagline. Like what... You have a very elegant design, so I don't think it's a bad thing that it didn't do a lot of outside playtesting because it's like it's it's a very. We're talking about Blue Planet, which we have. Well, yeah, but uh, in Upwind, it's a very robust mechanic. Yeah. Uh, it's like handles a lot of things. I again am not brief, so it's like oh, we need rules for that. 10k more words um, and so it's turning in this big like huge book uh, but when I, even when I had mechanics like that I just kept the idea a game of economic horror does it make it economic does it make it horrific or does it do both and then I can add a mechanic like and then everything else is 
I don't need that mechanic. Like, uh, so uh, that that's for me more useful than like your your tome of lore that's 4K long, which I'm currently writing and I didn't even have written down before we launched the Kickstarter because you know mechanically it's make a game about that tagline. Like it needs to yeah. do that one thematic thing uh, and it needs to do it well. Uh, and I've gotten more, I've gotten more utility out of joining my setting and my mechanics from from the subtitle of the book than I have from writing the full setting. Yeah. So, uh, one thing that's also interesting is that there's no uh, one thing uh, in games is that there's no one set like theory or accepted thing of like how your rules should inform your setting. Like uh, there are games out there, like indie games, that are very much like I want to take one particular idea and make a game about it. Like Fiasco, I want to do a Coen Brothers movie as a game. It's a very particular kind of game. It can't do anything else. Um, or there and there's sort of like a little more like red markets where the rules reinforce the theme and it's about this theme but it could be you can it's a very versatile kind of thing and then there are a lot of games out there that kind of like we have rules to do things in and here's a setting uh and then i mean a lot of game in systems out there are more like this is a you know medieval wizard physics simulator engine uh where we can figure out how many peasants will be exploded if you shoot a fireball at 300 feet up on a cliff and the windage is this and that kind of thing um and there's a space in role-playing games for all of that i don't know why you're laughing are you writing phoenix command and just putting like wizard hats on all the little soldiers Phoenix. I, yeah. Well, there, I, I was thinking more of Rollmaster. Literal Phoenix command. Rollmaster, remember, has a critical hit table for plasma weapons, and this is a medieval fantasy game. <laughs> so, um, so what I'm saying is, like, you need to, as a game designer, you need to figure out what you, what the relationship the rules should have to your setting and your game. Do you want the rules to re Like, if you're doing a game about paranoia and deception and something like that, uh, you know, you could do something really thematic like uh, Knights Black Agent, something that's really tied into it. Knights Black Agent would not be, if I was running Pride and Prejudice, the game, I would probably not use Knights Black Agent. Like that, that. If it was Knight, if it was Pride and Prejudice and a secret society of vampires trying to overthrow society, then yes. But like, it, it does one, it's, it's meant to do one thing. So if you want to just have like a game system that like, you know, like Savage Worlds, for example, they have one core module and then they have one core rules and then they have a lot of other supplemental source books like, oh, if you want to do horror, do this. If you want to have sci-fi, you want to do this. So as a game designer, where do you, what kind of game are you looking to do? Like, do you want to really, because there are, there are opportunity costs. If you're doing something like Red Markets, it can't, you know, uh, do certain things as well as other things. So you can't, you can't be, the one thing you should avoid is trying to be everything to everyone. You can't, like, you know, GURPS already exists, so don't try and recreate GURPS. Uh, and there's a reason, like, should there be even be a GURPS? Um, so, yeah, so that's a personal preference. Like, what do you want to do? And so, if you if you're trying to decide what, how much you want to emphasize those rules, that's another question. So, um, anyways, a question in the back. Yes. Who? No. Anyone? Uh, have, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I had a couple. Um, first of all, to the fireball thing, isn't the answer just always all of them? <laughs> uh, <laughs> all 
the peasants. Uh, that's that's reductive. I mean, <laughs> there's some of those peasants can you know. You haven't taken into account barometric pressure. <laughs> yeah. uh, that changes the boiling point of peasants. Uh, also, in Dungeon Classics, you can roll over the bodies; they might survive. <laughs> uh, so there's there's multiple factors. Uh, anyways, uh, seriously, um, when yeah. approaching Kickstarter, um, I, this might not be your wheelhouse. In as much as you guys have sort of the RPR, RPPR network, region, yeah. you know, yeah. to, to behind you guys, <laughs> uh, if you don't have access to that, do I need to run a podcast for 15 years first? To well, <laughs> it's not, it hasn't been 15. I mean, yeah. been like, yeah, yeah. You uh, can do what I did and just uh, invite yourself down to Springfield. Yeah, just, <laughs> just glom on. Find yeah. someone who's on the works, just glom on. Yeah. Just really <laughs> attach yourself to them. Um, you do need to build, like, some sort of internet. If you want to do a crowdfunding campaign, you do need some kind of fan base, some sort of group of people who are hype about your game. And... Um, there are a couple ways to do and you don't need to do a podcast obviously not no uh, do a podcast if you want to do a podcast don't do it to promote a kickstarter like that yeah no um, there are more better ways to spend your time uh, the first thing you get a social media presence like you know twitter uh, page some sort of website or blog uh, to talk you know like their kickstarter I still see even today where like there's no page of like here's our company page or here's my page as the designer where I can go and see something about this person to see what their design you know sensibilities are or that kind of thing um so that, that's a bare minimum. Now, you could also go to message boards and, like, talk about your game. Uh, you you need to learn the lay of the land for the message boards. Like, RPG.net has a different culture than Ian World, than something, than something awful. And, you know, then there's the, uh, you know, the Mad Max version that is 4chan or something like that. Yeah, like... Wear a uh, helmet. Yeah, wear a helmet. Um, well, and, I, and that's easy to do in places that already have established presences, like the Something Awful Forum. Yeah. Um, how do you go into a new community without sounding like a complete shit? Well, lurk, lurk a lot. That's what I'm saying. Learn the lay of the land. Learn what other people are doing. Learn what the rule... There are written and unwritten rules for every sort of online community that's been around more than a month. And so kind of learn the lay of the land. Like, contact the moderators and the people running the site and see, like, is it cool if I do this? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and usually you can do that. And if you're being very promotional, I mean, it also depends on what your time scale is. If you're, if you're going to want to do a Kickstarter next week, that's a different than if you have, like, two, you know, three years to build up a presence. The hardest thing I ever learned was, like, the first time I wrote a novel, I, it was just done one day. I didn't tell anyone I was writing a novel because I didn't want to be that guy. It's like, oh, I'm working on my novel. <laughs> And then how much did you write? And, like, that was how I lived my life for a long time. And one of the things that game design has taught me is that as long as you're still going to do it and you're not using talking about it as an excuse not to do it, just talk about what you're doing. So, like, don't wait till you have a Kickstarter and throw a link up on the forum. Start a thread and be like, I'm working on this. I want ideas. To like. And, like, that's free advertisement that you're not doing stuff like. Like, writing, writing ad copy kills me. I absolutely hate it. Uh, I'll write 20K words of, like, an RPG in a week, and I'll spend the same amount of time on a tweet for ad copy. Um, but... Just talk about what you're doing cause, and be transparent about it and, like, invite people into the community and discussion with it. And that that's going to build your social media presence and your presence on certain forums so that when you dump a link, it's been that Kickstarter you've been talking about for two years. And people are more likely to think you're doing it rather than just, like, 
exploiting their Facebook group or something yeah. like that. Um, so, and it's not that much extra work. You're just talking through ideas with people. Um, so, yeah, that's what Games Designer Workshop taught me more than anything. It's like um, there is utility and value in talking about something you haven't done yet so long as you actually end up doing it. Yeah. Um, whereas before I just thought you were like uh, some douchebag coffee shop writer. Another thing, uh, yeah. So. There's also like uh, which Jeff's going to be doing, which is uh, doing stuff with your game at a con. Like Jeff will be running a playtest of Upwind after this panel. Uh, so speaking of shilling, yeah, anybody <laughs> wants to play. Uh, so yeah, and there's like open play areas. I think at Union Station nearby. Uh, and th- so go to cons, uh, like even smaller cons. Uh, well, and if you go to Metatopia and Fred Hicks sits down and play test your games and sends out a tweet, congrats. You just gained 3,000 followers. Yeah. Like, you know, um, and there are, there are places for that kind of stuff, spaces in which are specifically about yeah. uh, that, uh, you know, play testing, getting exposure, things like that. Um, yeah, but yeah, go to cons, even like local cons, if you can't afford to go to Metatopia or something like that and be like, or go to your game store and just run demos of your game. You know, build up a fan base uh, through that. Just uh, and work on other projects if you can. Like help other people if they're like, uh, you know, if you're a game designer, it doesn't hurt to like get some freelance experience. Like go out uh, whenever you see a call for submissions or you want to publish something. Like at here at Gen Con, this is a great time to talk. If you're like doing sci-fi games, go to the people publishing sci-fi RPGs. Say you're looking for writers, uh, and then of course this is why you need like a website with your your you know hey, I'm this writer and here are my credits or here's what I want to do, and then they can link to it. Uh, and then you follow up a week later and be like, hey, we met at Gen Con. Do you still have work for me or do you forget about me and your you know sleep deprivation? Uh, that and, is Gen Con. And so. if your game's done and you've playtested and playable uh, god one shot jesus manna from heaven yeah uh, one online game i got more followers than like my entire first kickstarter well uh from and like so there are yeah. places where they're about trying new things and that equals promotion so, yeah talk to uh, other yeah. Pod, talk to talk to podcasters talk to bloggers uh we, we get a ton of things uh i can't respond to all of them because I get so many, and I can only do so much work uh, myself. But um, but there we, are spaces dedicated to the new. There parts. are a lot of RPG. Get, podcasts get into out those there. spaces. Yeah, there, there's a lot of those spaces. Those are kind of the basics. It's just you have to start. You have to start putting stuff out so people notice it. Uh, maybe do micro games. Maybe do you know write your own fiasco playset. You know stuff like yeah. that. Uh, free material for fans. You can self-publish like small stuff on Drive Through RPG very easily. You know, like here's a. Pathfinder class, uh, prestige class, or something like that, and you know, I'll sell it for a dollar, and then, or you know, there's a guy who's making like a thousand dollars a month selling like D100 tables of random things, uh, random, you know, uh, things you'd find in the trunk of a Yakuza's car, uh, like bloodstained katana, other blade, bloodstained katana, uh, you know, that kind of pachinko machine, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, bloodstained pachinko machine. There's a theme here. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, Jeff, is there anything you're doing for Don't, don't let it intimidate you. Um, I don't know how many of you know Blue Planet, but it was published all, I think, 18 years ago, 19 years ago. We're almost our 20th anniversary. Uh, back in the dark ages, where like full color wasn't a thing, social media consisted of listservs. Um, and so it's been a whole, like, kind of a brave new world for me. And it's been intimidating, and I'm not sure what I'm doing. And without some guidance. <laughs> no one does. Without getting some of the guidance I've gotten from Ross and the crew, um, I wouldn't even be doing as, as well as I am with some of this stuff. Uh, but just do it. 
right? Even though you're not sure, um, I went to a meeting last night of a, of a writing group. I didn't know anybody there. I mm -hmm. introduced myself, passed around the card, yeah. um, and, and you just get out there and, and, and be willing to give it a try. Yeah. Don't let it stop you. Yeah. Uh, yes. So here's a question. You're, you're, you're at a point where you're starting to, to play test. Mm -hmm. um, how concerned are you about getting the game out there and somebody potentially stealing your idea? Not at all. Uh, I'm just asking. I mean, like... Ideas are really easy. I mean, If I, I say I'm going to go run a marathon on a certain day, I'm not afraid someone's going to go run the marathon for me. <laughs> like, if it's a one-man marathon and there's a gold medal at the end of it and only one person gets the gold medal uh, and there's an entry person of one, it releasing IP like that's like being afraid some guy's going to run the 26 miles before you get there. Uh, and, and it's something that's not a competition. I mean, there's just so much work beyond the idea. The idea is so easy compared to every other little bit of it. Uh, and then, I mean, it's not that hard to establish IP in an actionable, like, method either. Well, one thing, uh, so, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, a couple things to keep in mind. You cannot, you cannot copyright game mechanics. You can only copyright the exact text of a game mechanic. Uh, yeah, they're gonna, so they're going to steal it anyway. If they want to take your game mechanic, oh, I, you roll two dice. Well, if one is higher than the other, then you win. If the other dice, ah, uh, uh, you know, Kale doesn't own that patent. Like, no one, that's not a patent that you can have. Um, that's why you can make unofficial stuff for Monopoly or Dungeons and Dragons. Like, the whole thing about the OGL is it made it easier to for people to make stuff, but people, Judges Guild and other companies, back in the old days, you know, made their own stuff for it. And... Uh, and there's nothing that you could do to stop it. Um, so if you have a cool idea, I mean, it's fine to like not if you if you think that somebody might, if it's a really catchy idea or something like that. Especially if it's something easy to do, like I, I, I mean, you might if you want to be protective of it, that's fine. I mean, I would I would advise against having people sign non-disclosure agreements or anything like that because that's kind of it's weird. It's not really customary in the tabletop in industry. Um, and the tabletop industry is just there's not enough money for people to do that kind of make it worthwhile I think um, I mean for Blue Planet did you have anything like that? Well, back in the day it was customary uh, oh, really? years ago everybody did it um, I realized that nobody does it and I'm not doing it anymore yeah. I mean Upwind's gone out to dozens of people um, in almost its complete state and um, I'm not worried about what they're going to do with it I'm, I'm very grateful for the people that want to play my monster tome of a game as a word document because that's hard work. Like, there's no art in there. It's not enjoyable to look at. It's no, hard yeah, to find yeah. stuff. There's no index. That's hard work. Like, and you're not going to make money off asking people to do hard work. I'm very grateful for it, but nobody's going to get rich off red markets by releasing a Word document. Uh, and then if you're that concerned, select Creative Commons on it. Search Creative Commons. Go to a license, share, share, like, non-commercial. I mean, they can't make money off your setting. Slap a link onto the thing, and you have that much IP if they start making money before you do. I mean, obviously, like, this changes if you if you actually get a license to some sort of intellectual property. Usually, the license holder will ask you to have NDAs and stuff like that. But that, that's a whole separate deal, and I haven't really worked with that. Uh, yeah, Eclipse Faces, uh, uh, they have... CC license all this stuff. Uh, I've never really worried about piracy myself because, again, 
Well, you you have. I mean, it's just throwing money away trying to fight it at this yeah, at this kind of stage. Um, so if you feel like you have something really cool and you don't want to blast it, and especially if it's something someone could easily come up with and make, like if you're like, oh, I have a card game. It's like card against humanity, but you know, better and fun or whatever. Then I mean, that's fine if 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 you want to do that. But like. Uh, it's a personal judgment call. It's whatever your it's your preference as a game designer. I, I just I I feel personally myself. I'm never really worried about it. So I mean, nobody cares about your idea until it's done. Go back and look at the comments on the first GDW when I pitched the red mark. It's like zombies. I rule. Yeah. Like no one cares about it. I would argue the Kickstarter is demonstrably more successful than that uh, because people care about ideas once it's finished and they don't have to do the work for it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but if you're just pitching someone, you're like you're stealing my great. It's never going to happen. There are I mean, <laughs> there are con artists and like frauds and people out there lurking in the industry. You know, we talk about them on our Patreon, like uh, Ken Whitman. But yeah, I wouldn't yeah. pitch a game to Ken Whitman. Yeah, uh, but, <laughs> or Whit Whitman, or Carlos Danger, or whatever his pseudonym is. Yeah. Whit you know? Whitman, yeah, yeah, uh, but, that, but that, uh, that's, yeah. A, that's like, a different. Back they're cats. probably if they're going to steal, they would steal it wholesale and then just assume you're too poor to sue them. Uh, you know, word for it, and that's but you, that's actually actionable. You know, <laughs> uh, copyright your stuff. Uh, go to the copyright office. You can file electronically, uh, so that's a good protection. Uh, and it costs like thirty five dollars to to file a copyright of a book or something like that. So truth is, the stakes aren't yeah. high enough. Yeah, it's just not there's not enough money to be made. And yeah. Um, yeah, the way that, things are spread around the internet, everyone knows who did it first anyway. Yeah, you don't have yeah, to. Leak, that's true. You don't have the leaked source code for Half Life Three. It's yeah. a Word document. No one cares. Uh, and if they're gonna and if they're gonna steal your artwork <laughs> or other stuff like that, they're just gonna steal your artwork. I mean, there you still see Kickstarters out there with stolen artwork. I mean, they usually get kicked out. I mean, there are people who are still doing like, oh, I want to do a Kickstarter for a GI Joe RPG, and I, I'll I'm going to use the money to ask you know Hasbro for GI Joe rights, and that's what I'll do. Like, <laughs> that's I, my favorite when they run Kickstarters for IPs they don't own. But they promise to ask later. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. Any other questions? Uh, yeah. Uh, I have two questions. Okay. Uh, my first one is with red markets. Like the guy already asked the question that uh, kind of answered mine. But um, the problem I have with uh, running the game I'm working on is I'm more of a like I create art. So mm. translating that technically. I show it, like, I can run it for my friends, but then when I write it down and give it to them, they're like, you just handed me a comic that does, this doesn't tell anything about the mechanics. They're like, I don't understand. It says right there. So what um, advice can you give somebody who's not, like, technically minded in, like, writing the mechanics of the game so you can translate how the game is supposed to carry um, through, you know, roll just dice, yeah. and, like, here's the mechanic. People love bullet points, oh. and they love flow charts. And if you haven't tested the rules and the rules and you're writing more than that, you're wasting your time. Yeah. Like if you can't break it down into do this step and that step's a line or two long, uh, that's not enough for a people to remember. Because uh, like even when you write a big book, you're just explaining in depth and providing examples of something that should be reduced to a bullet point or a flowchart. Um, so, like, it shouldn't be that technical. And then you're testing stuff out. It's foolish to test everything out at once, like, even from the basic definition of a test from the science standpoint, that's a bad idea. You have no control. So test certain things and you just make crap up. That's 90% of our in-play tests was like, I'm going to test these three things and then 
when Tom wants to ask if he can work out for the 70th time and invest 400 bounty into his muscles. Uh, I don't have rules for that, so I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Anyway, back to combat and figuring out how to do that. Like, so just, you know, just make it up. Like, just, you have a mouth, just tell them what the rule is. Yeah. Uh, uh, until you get it down on paper. RPG writing is technical writing. I mean, it's, it's you have to explain rules in a very clear and concise way. I, I would also try and find a collaborator to work with, uh, you know, may, not a, necessarily an editor, another writer. Seriously, uh, just glom on. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Jeff, I mean, what, uh, for you, right? It, it's yeah. a unique experience. I mean, writing writing rules, uh, I think, is tough. It's, it's very technical, but it yeah. also be approachable. And um, I think games are getting more and more elegant in how they do it. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling, uh, I'm struggling a little bit, I think, to be that elegant, but I, I feel your pain. You have the image in your head, you know what yeah. you want it to be, and now you've got to communicate it to people. Um, if you've got people that are willing to do it, you, you write it, and then you get them to read it, and then you get them to sort of give back to you their understanding of it and modify it from there if you're, if you're certain you're going to do it on your own. Um, but like you said, if you've got a, a, someone who wants to collaborate and is, is good at technical writing... Um, yeah, man, I need you to keep drawing stuff. <laughs> Send me something, I'll get back to you. Yeah. As long as you keep drawing them posters. Yeah. Uh, like, you, you got me got me by the short hairs. I will read it, trust yeah. me. And honestly, uh, I'm sure there's people out there that are, that are like, I really want to work on games, but I, I just don't have this creative edge. And I wish... I got, I got this great mind for mechanics, but I don't... I need somebody to help me, and you can find those people with, with uh, resources that are available and, and maybe build a relation, working relationship. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, did you have another question? Or oh, that, yeah. um, the second question was, uh, in one of your RPPR episodes, you were talking about like uh, a random mechanic in red markets, and I love the ones from the beta you, you sent me, but um, I was wondering like, what's kind of like the golden ground of like how much random mechanics you want to put in your game. Because um, you like, like you said, in like character generation, it can end up hilarious. <laughs> if you can get shoulder mounts uh, on your hand, like you hit, you stop digging, you hit gold. I think. Uh, uh, yeah. So like, uh, ran- randomness is you have to accept both sides of it, and it can be hilarious. And if you're writing a comedy game, like more hilarity is is better. Um, but. Uh, so, for instance, like, in No So Left Behind, there's a chapter in which you have to interview to replace teachers. Uh, and No So Left Behind is largely a comedic game, so you roll randomly for how good the teacher is. Uh, and that's ridiculous. But that's real. Yeah, well, no, but, like, it can be, like, one, one, like, me no English so good, and they text it to you and then just look at their phone for the whole interview. Or they can, like, bake cookies and be teacher of the year. And that's ridiculous if I was running, like, a drama system game set in a school like you don't want a clown that shows up there so like in randomness you have to be prepared for that that's why uh, the randomness at Red Markets is so modular like you can plan out every leg or you can just roll for it Uh, just depending on that because like hilarity ensues when you let the dice do the talking Um, and you have to be prepared for that so geez last night we played in Call of Cthulhu game where we had random roll injury tables and I rolled 17 and my character was a mask in World War One, so the majority of the game became about my character's junk um, <laughs> or lack thereof. Uh, we and, recorded this game about and that, what cosmic <laughs> and what cosmic entities were doing about that, um, and it was ridiculous. Like and like, we had a lot of fun because it was like me and Glancy, but people we knew. But like, 
I was telling him later is like, if you're just gonna run that and give that people to run at a con, no. Like, I'm not terrified. It's about a character's junk now. It's <laughs> it, it like and like it is terrifying in real life and uh, based on a terrifying real thing. But like, people can't approach horror that directly. You got to sidle up to it. And so, like, putting that on your random roll table is your one number away from this being, you know, wacky smackety do Benny Hill skit. Uh, and if that's not what you want in your game, don't put the randomness in there. Uh, so you, you gotta you gotta be available on both sides. Uh, same thing for the grim darkness. Like, uh, so in in red markets, if you just keep getting crit fails on that leg table. You're dead. Like, yeah. you're not going to make it to the job site. Uh, and I'm totally cool with that. But if I wasn't cool with that, I shouldn't have put that random element in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had a question? Okay, yes, sir. Uh, yeah, so I was going to ask. Um, uh, I've been reading a lot of RPGs lately because I wanted to find sort of a good social system. Uh, and I was wondering, uh, you guys have run quite a lot of games that I think have really interesting social systems. Uh, Red Markets is a really good one that I like. Sort of the negotiation thing is great. Um, and then Nice Black Agents, I really like the social system. Mm -hmm. Even though it's so incredibly, like, I just spend the point, okay, you get the thing. Uh, what do you guys think makes uh, a robust or an interesting or an especially functional social system? Because I, I find a lot of games sort of be more of that. Like Diplomacy and D&D is the best example in the universe of that. Well, I mean, it's, it's a flip of the coin. You either... You've either min-max your character be to never fail diplomacy checks, or you roll or not twenty, or you don't, and that's that. Like there's no, there's no. It's a very binary thing. You and there, you either. I mean, they have a gradiated success in some of the optional rules stuff like that. But um, yeah, social conflict is a very interesting system. I mean, I actually really do like the Q system because, like all conflicts in it, you explicitly set the stakes ahead of time because the problem with social conflict a lot of times is you players and the GM don't necessarily know what the stakes are. The stakes ahead. are usually nothing happens or the thing I want happens. Yeah. It's not bad thing happens or the thing I want. Yeah, in combat it's very like who lives and who dies. That's those are the stakes. It's pretty pretty easy to figure out. But in uh, like do I you know, I was just reading on our Facebook group, like, why some there's a guard by the door. Oh, I roll, I fail my lie check to get past the guard. The guard wasn't even asking you. You ran up and started lying to him. Like, <laughs> why did you do that? Like, there's all kinds of miscommunication. Um, so, systems that allow for understanding what the stakes are and uh, a sort of a more spectrum result. Uh, Duel of Wits from Burning Wheels, really good. That's a social mechanic if you've not read that. Uh, any Greg Stolze game, uh, especially with shifting dice mechanics, where being good at one thing precludes you from being good at the other thing. Like, your ability to lie and deceive everyone makes you really hard to connect to as a person because you're a pathological liar. Like, those are really interesting, like, ways of socially... And then uh, Better Angels using the same mechanic, but all actions but have moral weight. Like, punching someone has a different moral weight than shooting someone. Uh, and so, like, uh, those are all really interesting ways. But basically, there's a range of options. Like, there's a range of outcomes in those social systems. It could be total, complete disaster failure, total wonderful, and then a bunch of mitigating spaces in between. And that's what you're looking for in a good social system. Otherwise, I will admit to being a power gamer in that I realize that the deception skill is the most powerful skill in any game. If you have a combat chapter that's 40 pages long and then a deception skill entry on your character creation chapter that's like yay big, I'm going to dump everything in deception. Because I'm one roll away from getting you to fight for me. I'm one roll away from never having to get into a fight at all. Uh, because you've, you've reduced 
you've reduced all human social interaction into a single role. Yeah, this, this I'm, gonna, I'm just going to dump it all into that. I don't need to shoot a gun. That's what you're for, help. Uh, <laughs> as I've convinced you to do that with my maxed out role in that. Uh, and that's a game with like a not very robust social system. That's actually that's actually happens in D and know I don't know. I can't remember the exact thing, but there was a like <laughs> I am the moon. Is, yeah, I am the moon. Like <laughs> you could make a level seven character who had like a plus eighty or something to diplomacy. So he'd be like, you could literally tell somebody, and the lie check to believe in outrageous lie was like eighty or hundred or whatever. So you could make a check and be like, and say whatever you want, and the person would fanatically believe you. I am the moon, and then of course your your buddies are next to you. He is the moon for that. Really important plus two, uh, and you're like, who needs to fight? I am the moon. Fight for me. Fight for the moon. Um, so that's kind of a fail system when it, you can just break it down to a single d20 roll. Why? Yeah, uh, Jeff. I mean, what do you like in social? Well, system? I think that one of the things that that uh, makes social mechanics difficult or substandard in a lot of games is that they're not emphasized. I mean, so much of a game is combat. Really, yeah. If you look at the spectrum of role-playing games, um, and I think what what I like best about social systems that seem to work, or at least ones I enjoy the most, is they, in some way, structure a role-playing interaction. They get the characters at the table to ask questions of each other in character, or ask questions of the GM in character, and talk about the situation and build some story around it, so it doesn't feel like the nothing happens option or the, the good thing happens option right? so that there's some consequences to it even if they're just story ones that, that kind of add to your imagination rather than a mechanical bit I think um, one of the strengths of games like Delta Green or Red Markets is that they put a little bit of rules around those interactions but it's not the role that determines the final end that's interesting about that you know, it's the what happens between the characters that I, that I find interesting and fun. And and what I love about Solzy's game is that like in games that don't emphasize social mechanics well, uh, social rules are basically mind control rules for NPCs. And uh, I really love that for NPCs or PCs, there's no mind control option. But Stolze always is very good in that he makes it like rhetoric, and that rhetoric is always about a threat or a promise. Uh, and so, like when I see the Sarah McLaughlin ASPCA corner in the eyes of an angel, I know I need to like dive over the couch like a grenade just went off because like I either give money to the ASPCA or I feel like crap. It doesn't force me to give money to the ASPCA, but it's a pathos appeal. Feel like crap or do what I say. Or another pathos of people be like, feel real good if you do what I say. It's not mind control. It's not like I tell you a lie, you instantly believe it. I've incentivized you to believe it. And a game system that like is heaping that on, or like my negotiation mechanic is like, it very much becomes about needing to agree for a financial incentive. Uh, that That's a more realistic social interaction. Because we don't we don't mind control each other. We rarely coerce. We coerce each other. Like, we threaten each other with social capital or emotional capital, or we reward each other with that. Uh, so a system that more represents that is better than, like, I am the moon. Um, uh, one, actually, fate is really good for this because uh, fate, in mo pretty much every fate system... Uh, all conflict is handled using the same mechanics, and in various different versions of fate, you'll have different stress tracks, like one for health and one for stress, 
or I mean for composure, for social reputation. Uh, and they also have aspects where you can invoke them to gain bonuses by spending fake points or compel them to gain, uh, or yeah, to gain them by ha- putting yourself at a disadvantage. I mean, recently I was running Base Raiders uh, campaign and in one session, Caleb and Faust uh, got into a massive social conflict over a marriage proposal between the two of them, uh, their characters, and they just kept spending fate points like freely. Like, no, I, you, you realize I'm lying about the marriage proposal. No, you don't. Oh, yes, you do. You know, and they go went back and forth until they just spent all their fate points on this one thing. And the session and, before that, we had a Bollywood dance off. Yeah, uh, there was did reputation damage. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like yeah, um, and because so the players, one thing they're incentivized to role play their characters' dis- disadvantages in order to uh, gain fate points to use as ammunition later on in order to win social conflicts. And a social con- a social character is just as effective as a combat character in fate because they can like leverage your aspects against you uh, very effectively. So I actually had an NPC enemy called Swavbot who was a robot who could just read characters aspects very well and feed them to his allies to gain leverage. He was just like Regina George from Mean Girls in an Iron Man scene. <laughs> <laughs> it was just... That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> oh um, and another NPC like realized what his, uh, Kale's character's weaknesses were and be like, oh, you should go uh, rob, make a distraction while we, we, while we go rob a bank because the enemy, the communists uh, it, you know, uh, are attacking, and you know, or something like that. I needed those extra points. Yeah, exactly. I had to add those flaws. Yeah, um, I was allergic to communism. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, any other questions uh, about game design or RPPR as a whole? Uh, we got a couple more minutes to spare. Uh, oh yeah. Um, so one thing I've, I've sort of haven't seen a lot in RPPR is uh, so I uh, I've been playing games for a long time, hmm. uh, but kind of badly. <laughs> uh, I don't want to say I've been playing games wrong, but most of the games uh, that I, I've kind of grown up with was me and my friend who I've known for something like 20 years sitting in a basement uh, with 15 imaginary characters we made up playing the most haphazard game of Dungeons & Dragons you can possibly imagine. Very much. Did you have fun? You didn't play yeah, no, no. Yeah, it, so. it was fun and all, but it doesn't transition well to sort of group play. Okay. You know what I mean? Uh, so something I, I've sort of really wanted on RPR that I haven't necessarily seen a lot is... Uh, not so much how to write scenario, but maybe just advice on sort of the structures or the the, the way you set up a campaign. Like um, for a really long time, I wanted to run this like super episodic, really awesome uh, Cool Space game, sort of because I listened to No Evil while I was in college, and I was very inspired by that. Uh, and I mucked that up all kinds of ways, <laughs> uh, mostly because I, I feel like I didn't know my players, but at the same time, I didn't know what I had to do in advance. Um, do you guys, uh, I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about that? Um, for me, it's very much having an endpoint in mind and then doing no work in between and then having a first scenario. Like, yeah. I have an endpoint, I know where I'm aiming, and then everything else very much becomes like, uh, so like, that's why I will like force people to make a decision before the game ends. Like, if you have five planets you can go to, I know what's happening roughly on every five planets, but I want to cater it to what just happened. So before we leave, tell me what planet you're going to, uh, so I can I can focus on that. And if you keep it very much like 
all right, this happened last scenario, last session. What do we do this next session? That it makes it seem like it's like uh, Mask of Nyarlathotep and endlessly branching linear, path, but when in fact you just weren't doing the work in between until you had to do it. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, so I, you know, No Evil was an outline on a Prezi, uh, and then the scenarios were my typical monster long scenarios, but written the week before the game because I knew exactly what was happening in, in the previous week and then um, uh, in the latest on an army Solzy calls it blowback after a certain point the game starts writing itself because yeah. they've made so many stupid decisions that's actually the base uh, yeah, yeah they've made so many stupid decisions that are just going to come like the stars are destination segment of Eclipse Phase because I didn't have time to write because I was really busy at school so I just got that pre-gen thing and everything just became how badly they'd screwed up for every game before. It just... It, uh, it, I mean, yeah. You didn't totally screw up. I mean... <laughs> like, for our, and knowing your players does help. Like, for RPPR, I need two scenarios maybe before the game becomes about undoing Aaron's damage. <laughs> um, uh, and, but, and that just takes care of itself. Uh, so that helps. Uh, but really, just don't do all that in-between work. Don't plot out absolutely everything. Know roughly where you want to end, and then know where you're going to start, and then make choices based off what happened. That The Base Raiders campaign that I'm running right now is literally like, I just made the first session set up so that they would make a lot of horrible mistakes, and I, the campaign has been writing itself. And then, and then any yeah. choice in that session you do design can yeah. be completely like... Bioware game superficial like red explosion blue explosion green explosion like that's the amount of choice you need to not put somebody on a railroad but those stack up so if it becomes the green explosion in session two all of those choice points make it seem like you're an endlessly inventive improvisational GM when in fact like it was a pretty lame fatalistic it's always going to happen choice in the first session but the second session because it was designed based on that choice, seemed like a brand new world that only the players could create. Um, yeah, Jeff, what do you do when you're structuring campaigns? Um, I, I like to well, the start. I think the, the start starting point is essential because that sets the tone, right? So that's yeah. usually where your idea comes from. That first scenario is run through your head, um, and that's fine. But I really do think you need to have uh, imagine uh, not a, a segment or a, sorry, a line segment where you're going from one end to the other but just points that are flexible and that you can move around. And if there's certain things you know you want to happen in the campaign or set pieces that are going to be cool or interesting or maybe even they're based on a neat piece of terrain you just bought and you want to have them have a battle on it, you, know, you have that out there and you structure your, your session or your encounter around it, but you make it so that it can be moved around as, as need be and you don't plant it, like you said, until they get there. And then you realize they've done all these things and then you can enhance that piece. But I like to have that starting point all the dots that are going to be somewhere along the end, and then a, and then an ending point. I think a lot of people don't give thought to their ending point, at least in the general terms, and that's why a lot of campaigns die. I mean, raise your hand if you've got a character out in limbo somewhere that a campaign never finished, right? Um, I hate that, among all other things in gaming. I hate to leave a campaign I'm running unfinished, even if it sucks. Um, so at least have some sort of final point that you're aiming at, even if you don't quite, cut, quite get there. Yeah, make a, make a podcast, and then you have to end your campaign. Otherwise, <laughs> How much right. of your question is based on um, table management? You said you didn't know your players versus campaign structure. Well, um, basically when I was in high school, uh, I did a lot of around-the-table physical games with people who I'd known for a while, uh, who I could be 
you through high school. Um, and most of those games ended poorly because we had been going for two years and everybody was sick and tired of everything. I just wanted to go to college already. And uh, so that, you know, that sort of impacted a little bit of my table management ability. So now everything I do is on Rule 20 because I live far away from all the people who I like to hang out with. Uh, and I have no idea how to do table management on Rule 20 whatsoever. Uh, Online games are different, yeah. Yeah, I think a big part of it, uh, when I start a big campaign, I always um, write a bunch of background information. I share all the information that the players are going to need. They never read it, right? But I do it anyway. Or just snipers, yeah. Yeah. Um, But I also do uh, a Google Doc survey. Mm-hmm. Um, about the campaign. So, what do you want out of this campaign? What and I have I have rank things like: Do you want what put put these in order of importance to you? You know, combat, intrigue, um, what whatever happens to be part of that game. Uh, and then I ask a bunch of questions about their character, like what's his name, what happened to his parents. You know, maybe fifty questions long. It's also really hard to get them to do that. But if you can get them to, or you can walk them through it yourself, and then you can use that to build the campaign. The more you make it about the characters, they think they want to play, the better they're going to respond to it, and it's going to be a much more uh, uh, Adam, what was your question? Game. So, a little more of a plus one. Okay. Um, but for Jeff and what you're talking about, I'm working on developing a campaign for technical difficulties. It's going to be Eclipse Phase, um, but one of the difficulties I think with Eclipse Phase is how deep the setting is, and, you know, the technical difficulties grew, you know, my wife and their whole crew. They already know a lot of the Eclipse Phase stuff because I'm more of a philosophical person. That's how I'm going to approach it. So I've had to do the Google Doc survey to really push them to think about their characters. But so, you know that gets into some of the questions of how you structure those and how you, what you ask. What I've been asking them is, what's their conflict? Why on earth are you in Firewall? Why do you care? And then I have leitmotifs that Ross helped me with on the Facebook page. You know. Don't overpower your MacGuffin. You know, it, it, yeah. it can't just be the end of the universe. It has to, there has to be some gray. Yeah, getting help online is good. Like, pitch, throw ideas, get a sounding board. You know, go to a message board or a Facebook group or something like that. And be like, I think I'm doing this. How does this sound? Uh, that's a really, those are really good ideas. Um, also, if you're trying to do a particular genre type game, I would get some good role playing games in that genre and just read them for advice. Even if you're not running Knights Black Agent, the Conspiramid is a real useful for making uh, an espionage conspiracy type game. Uh, Feng Shui has really good advice for running action. Uh, if you're doing, you know, if you're doing any sci-fi eclipse phase is useful because it actually has you know science in it weird uh, but there's yeah. there's nothing wrong well with, I mean it's there's nothing wrong with segments of a railroad yeah like when I started no so left behind I literally say in the first chapter this is a railroad because do you want to play a game where you have superpowers this is the railroad towards superpowers like it's the basic premise of the game. You're on board for this segment of the railroad. Then you go nuts. You got superpowers. Go crazy. But like, well, it's surprising how uh, when you tell your players this is going to be a little railroady, they're much more likely to accept it and follow yeah. along than if you're trying to camouflage it somehow. Yeah, be meta about it too. Like, I mean, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes promise you, them it's going to open up later and then do that. Because sometimes you'll run a game where the premise of the game is being I don't know Shanghai on a ship, and then the players <laughs> are going to be like. Oh dare the fates conspire! I refuse to work, and then they, yeah. But you know that's rare. You don't have to worry about that. Or like uh, you, you yeah. write a freelance game for like a game where you're supposed to be a supervillain possessed by demons. Like, why do we have to be supervillains? Why do they have to be demons? Why does they have to be set in school? Why? 
Yeah. That that's that's not your problem. That's not bad game design. That's a person disagreeing with the purpose of the game. That's not your job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we're about out of time. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can answer more questions though in the hallway and stuff yeah. like that. So. Um, I, is there a panel after this? Is there another panelist? I guess not. Uh, so we can go a little. Yeah, we can go a little. Um, can I throw in a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, something I've learned also is no plot will ever survive its first interaction with players. Or do you? Not that it, it, the plot won't be the one you think it is. Yes. Like you think you want to do a game where the players will fight evil, blah blah blah, and then they start looting laser rifles and start selling them on black market. Yeah. And be like, all right, I guess you're black marketeers now. So I have an idea of what like the NPCs are like. Mm-hmm. Don't have a full idea of railroading the entire time after like the first game or so, yeah. and just adjust the NPC's reaction to what the PCs are doing. I think that's how we have a lot of where you have an idea of what category your NPCs are in. We have well-meaning characters, um, and they're they're going to be because it's supposed to be literally the same well-meaning characters show up over and over and over and over again. But they're always going to be the same first contact with the PCs well Yeah. Also there's the the RVR standard, the mystery conspiracy game, in which for all intents and purposes, the story has already happened. You're ninety-nine percent of the way the story. People are dead. Uh, like there's fluoride in the water, whatever you're doing. Uh, and then how are all those people and events related? You flowchart that out if you want to do the whole thing. And then the nonlinearity comes from where do the PCs enter and how do they navigate the maze? It's basically a semiotic dungeon rather than like a square by square dungeon. Like what point of meaning do I move it's to next? It's a railroad. It just has lots of it's, it, Railroad's got a lot of switch. But no one's going to feel like it's a railroad. Yeah. Like, everyone's going to be like, oh, we did it this way and that way, and there's going to be stuff they miss, and you can talk about that after the game, and then you look like, you know, it, you can generate whole worlds in seconds with no process. And talking with your players, too, like, uh, there's there's a lot of value in why are we sitting around this table, what do you want out of the games, that games we play that are system and, and setting independent, right? Make sure that, you know, Robin Laws wrote, uh, was it Laws of... Yeah, Rob, Robin's Law. Robin's game, Laws yeah. of Good Game Mastering. Yeah. Um, it's got some awesome advice in it, and it's it's very true about um, how how why players play games. You want to make sure you're giving them that stuff. But remember, it's a lot more fun, I think, to um, tell the story together than try and just tell the story to them. So get them involved, even if, even before you pick the next campaign. Uh, Thanks, I think, Jeff. I like to plug podcasts better than ours, and it's really helpful. <laughs> Uh, I'm talking about the little book. <laughs> yeah. uh, a couple things. Uh, if you have any of these tickets, uh, please drop them off here. Uh, if you don't, that's fine. Uh, we do have a couple other events uh, tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. in this hotel, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Station C. Uh, we'll be talking about red markets. Uh, uh, we can talk about game design stuff, but it'll make me like, I'm running yeah. red markets. It's, it'll be our uh, first little advice. Panel. At 11 a.m., uh, Victoria Station uh, A slash B here again, Crown Plaza. I will be talking about Patreon. Uh, so uh, along with Faust and uh, from Thrilling Intent and Matt from uh, the Drunk and Ugly podcast. Um, and then Friday, 7 p.m. is the RPPR meetup at Ball this this room, uh, Ballroom D. So uh, you found it. Yeah, you found it. Good job. <laughs> And the innies are going on at the same time, so I might run out to grab if I win an any an any and bring it back in here, screaming you know bloody oaths to the world. And then Saturday, two p.m. 
Pennsylvania Station A, Neo Lovecrafting Horror. Uh, that'll be about uh, Lovecrafting Horror in the here and now, everything from Hellboy to Delta Green, all that good stuff. And Matt from the Drunken, I believe, will be there as well. Uh, but yeah, if you have any questions, we can answer them individually if you come up. Uh, I, I'd also like yeah. to make a quick yes. pitch. I am willing to run um, Upwind demos all weekend. I've scheduled out this afternoon. If there's anybody here that would like to maybe grab lunch and then and then play some Upwind, we can do that. We can play a one-hour demo. I've got a full four-hour um, full meal deal if you're interested. Um, if you don't have time now but want to play some time later in, in the weekend and you want to schedule a time, I'm happy to do that. I also have some promotional stuff I'd love to hand out because I don't want to carry it home on the plane. If you guys uh, want to grab some of it while you're here, I'm happy to hand it out. Uh, and, yeah, we, if you want to talk to us after, we have a group meet. Uh, chats that up with announcements for when we're running on official games and playtests and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah. Yeah. Yay! Yeah.